Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the JavaScript Jabber. Sorry, I'm laughing because AJ was just playing a sound effect that made me laugh. Um, my name is Steve Edwards. I am the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. And with me today on our panel, we have AJ. How you doing, AJ? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm coming at you. Wait. Oh, dang it. You asked me a question. <laughs> well, yo, yo, waiting. yo. Coming you at go. you live. Yes. From Power Tools. You're coming live from Power Tools. The land of Power Tools. Is that it? It doesn't really have to be a place. I can oh, just okay. say coming at you live. And then I could say Jello. I could say running. Okay. AJ's got his own world of where he's coming from. That's fine. Yeah. And as our special returning guest, we have the one and only Mishko Heavery. How are you doing, Mishko? I am doing well. Thank you for having me again. You guys haven't gotten bored of me yet, huh? No, not yet. Not yet. Uh, well, yet being the keyword. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But seriously, and before I forget, we always need to welcome in our studio audience. How are you doing, everybody? It's always nice to have the studio audience. Uh, you know, they give you that feedback and that uh, that validation that what you're saying is really awesome. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through my, most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. So uh, before we get going, uh, we've had Mish go on before, and I'm sure all of you are, know who he is. He is quite the luminary in the web development uh, world. But uh, give us a quick background on yourself, Mishko, who you are, what you do, why you're famous, etc. Ah, yeah. So uh, hi, I'm a CTO of uh, Builder.io. Uh, it's a place where we make, um, you know, allow you to add visual editing into your website. But yeah, I'm known for this thing called AngularJS and then later Angular. Um, and I had something to do with Karma, the test runner. Karma. Okay. Yes, we have had, just as by way of background, uh, we had Steve Sewell from Builder.io on episode 540 of JavaScript Jabber. And then we've also had Mishko on previously to talk about uh, Build uh, Quick on episode 549. So we will put those links in the show notes for you. So in our previous episode, we were talking about Quick. And we wanted to continue talking about quick. Uh, there were some questions we had, um, and there was more to talk about, obviously. So before we get off running down that path, Mishko, if you can just give us a quick overview of what, I guess, what quick is and what the problem is that it is trying to solve. So quick is a framework, uh, front-end framework for building websites. Um, and its specific goal that it's trying to solve is um, the amount of JavaScript that's being downloaded into the websites is way too much uh, at the beginning. And so instead of downloading all the JavaScript, eagerly Quick tries to uh, be very intelligent about how it streams the JavaScript into the client. 
So if you've come to a site that has been slow on startup performance, in other words, you know, you come and you're like, want to click a particular button and it takes 15, 20, 30 seconds to get it going, especially on a mobile device, and you get frustrated, then, you know, quick is the answer, hopefully, in that for that uh, problem space. So um, I got a million questions going through my head again. So this is, I guess, the problem, you know, coming from a server-rendered PHP world, in in my initial years, the idea with fixing this was that you quickly load everything that comes from the server, so your HTML, and then you reserve space, I guess, for things that are come to be loaded later, such as the JavaScript in the browser or maybe ads or something like that, um, so that the user is able to see visually, okay, yes, there is a page here. It's not stuck. The website isn't down or something. I at least have something here and I'm waiting for everything else to fill in. So the idea of quick, as I understand it, is that you can have it all at once and have it load quickly and efficiently, or am I describing that wrong? No, I think that's, that's a reasonable description. Actually, I'm, I'm glad you started with a PHP because I think, um, you know, PHP is just one of many ways that we used to render HTML at a server, right? Sure. And uh, I think what's unique is that it's different than JavaScript, right? And because it's different than JavaScript, the, the mental model we had is that we would render HTML on a server, send it to the client. And actually, this was very performant because clients, you know, the browsers are really, really good at like displaying HTML. But the problem we would have is that we wouldn't have any interactivity, right? So any kind of interactivity that you wanted to have on a page would have to be through JavaScript. And so things like jQuery, where we would like, you know, pick and choose individual parts. And so because jQuery kind of made it uh, possible to have interactivity, but it wasn't like, you know, easy in the sense that like you had to think about it, right? You had to write half of your code in, in server-side language like PHP and the other half of the code in JavaScript like in jQuery. Uh, the amount of interactivity was always kind of limited only when it was necessary. And so, so these sites actually performed rather well because... Uh, HTML is fast to render, and the amount of jQuery we could throw out the problem would be always limited because you know it wasn't trivial to add it, and so you know the friction was relatively high, and so you know you would only add the the interactivity when it was absolutely necessary. And we went through this transition. We went from what you know we used to call multi-page applications to single-page applications. And when we transitioned to SPAs, the mental model was like, you know what, let's just render everything in JavaScript from the very beginning. And so the way that would work is we would send essentially a blank HTML page, which just contained a bunch of script tags. And these script tags would then execute and render the whole application. And the reason why developers love this is because the mental model got simplified greatly. Like all of a sudden, you don't have to think about the server language and the client-side language or attaching listeners or anything like that. It's just like one thing, which is the JavaScript app and inside of the JavaScript app, you can do whatever you want. And voila, it's a beautiful developer experience. And I think this is the reason why kind of SPAs kind of took off. But the problem with this particular approach is that, well, you're sending a blank HTML page to the user. And so the user navigates the page and they don't see anything. And so now you have to wait the whatever, however it, it takes to run the application until the application is up and running, right? And so it could be multiple seconds, like, Again, 10, 15, 30 seconds if it's a slow connection kind of a thing. And so people said, like, you know, that, that's not a good experience for the developer, for the users. You know, what could we do to improve? And, and um, basically, the solution was, well, we're just going to show them the picture of the site until the application kind of gets ready. 
And so the idea is like you show them essentially the same page that the application eventually renders, you know, we call it a pre-rendering. And then uh, the application renders normally like it always did. And essentially at some point it just like throws away the, the loading page and replaces it with the actual application. And now you have um, the application running. And, and hopefully if the page that you originally showed and the thing you're replacing with, they look identical, then the user hopefully never even notices, right? And of course, people like did improvements on it, saying like, well, instead of throwing it away completely, how about we reuse the DOM nodes and you know, different tricks like that. But like fundamentally, that's kind of what's happening is that if everything's just ha happening in a client and you're just showing a user a pre-rendered page to kind of entertain them while the real thing actually gets ready. Um, and so the problem with that particular approach is that now you're you're sending, you're not actually improving the speed, you're just kind of making it look like it's faster, right? Because you can't really click on anything faster. As a matter of fact, you can make an argument that the page is not slower because sending the HTML was extra data that you had to send. And so now you're sending this stuff twice, once as HTML, once as JavaScript that knows how to render the same exact HTML. And so this is kind of the world where we've been it at for a very long time for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years where we've just been sending um, essentially everything twice. And we're just kind of hoping that the developer doesn't click on anything. Sorry, the, the user doesn't click on anything until it's actually ready. Uh, and, and Google has kind of noticed this, this particular trend. And they've been pushing hard on the things like uh, Core Web Vitals, Lightspeed tests, et cetera. These are all different, basically, measurements of like how fast your page comes up. And you know they're trying to influence the um, the developer environment, you know, the, the developers would say like, hey, you know, you need to kind of get better at this. This isn't good enough, especially on the developing markets where the internet might be the fastest and the mobile devices are slow. This is a problem. Like, we need to do better. Okay, so you did a great job of describing, okay, the way it's been, um, what people have tried to do and, and how to basically get your page inter uh, functional and interactive more quickly so that the user is not sitting there waiting and waiting. So now that we've identified the problem, how is Quick trying to address this? Yeah, so, so Quick's insight is that we're sending the same information twice, you know, once in the form of HTML, and then again in the form of JavaScript, which knows how to build the HTML. And, and so this duplication is what we're trying to remove. And the duplication really isn't a problem from the point of view of the amount of code on a wire, right? The amount of bytes we have to send on a wire. I mean, it's a sum of the problem, but that's not really the main thing. The main thing we're going after is the expense of actually executing the code that produces the HTML, right? So what Quick is trying to do is say, hey, there's all these things that are duplicated. There are things that are already shown up once in the HTML. And then again, they're showing up again inside of the JavaScript. And the problem is that I have to re-execute the JavaScript in order to rebuild what's actually already in the HTML. Can we skip that bit somehow? Right? Can we not do the work that we have already done? Like, if you think about it, the application already ran on a server or, or during the build time or it's cached in a CDN or, you know, whatever. But like it, it already executed once. And therefore, all of the information is already present in the HTML. Can we just kind of figure out the bits that need to have interactivity and just kind of ignore everything else? Because, well, we don't need to re-render the page. It's already rendered, right? We just have to be intelligent about how we can attach to the page that's already rendered. And so the, the, the quick kind of a trick here is um, figuring out how not to 
re-execute code that's already been executed on our server. And so we call this resumability because the way, to, if you think about it, the way it works is really just like VMs work. Like when you first, you know, uh, launch a VM in a, in a host machine, the VM goes through a boot up process, right? You can watch the BIOS come up and the boot up and login screen and everything, right? And at some point you can just save it and ship the saved VM into a different machine, a physical machine. And when you resume it, uh, you're exactly where you left off. You don't go through the boot up process again. And so the same exact thing is what we're trying to apply to uh, frameworks, which is that if you're thinking about it, the, the initial rendering of a page is kind of like the boot up process. And the fact that like we re-rendered the whole thing on the client again, even though the server just did it, is basically what I call replayability, right? Like we're replaying what the server just did in order to get to ourselves in the exact same state where we were when the server like took a snapshot. And so resumability is about being able to take that snapshot and then continue where you left off. And as a result, you get to skip a huge amount of code. And again, the skipping is really not as much about um, sending less JavaScript over, which is important. It is much is more about like the fact that you don't actually get to execute all that code, right? And so huge parts of the ex of the application just never execute again on the client. And this is where the savings are coming from. So the speed is that you're not duplicating yourself. You're keeping, uh, I guess you could say you're adhering to the dry, bri bleh, dry principle, DRY, right? Don't repeat yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Just so from a from a from a an HTML delivery standpoint, that, that's exactly it. Um, and I think that the the speed actually is, is kind of interesting to talk about speed because um, when you come to a, a page, the the, the application has to run from the beginning, right? It has to render everything, et cetera. And so it's a huge amount of, of JavaScript that has to execute. The interesting thing about resumability is that no matter how complicated the application is, when you resume it, you, there is actually nothing to do. Like the amount of code to run is essentially nothing. Resumability doesn't have any code associated with it. The only code that is associated is when the interaction actually happens, right? So when I click on a button, then I have to execute the code that's associated with the button. But the act of setting up the listener for that button and re-rendering and figuring out what the listener is and all that stuff, all of that stuff is just skipped. And so this is why we oftentimes say that resumable frameworks have O of one startup performance, meaning like it doesn't matter how complicated the JavaScript that initially rendered the page is. When you resume it, there is always essentially no work to be done. Okay, so you talk about resuming. Resuming from what? Resuming from changing a page. Resuming from ah, so, reloading. So, for instance, if I, you know, if I bring up a, a quick page, okay, and you've sent me everything, and I've got all the JavaScript and HTML I need, and we can get into the details of that in a bit. If I refresh the page, okay, is mm -hmm. it keeping everything that was sent the first time, so that when you resume, you're where you left off, or is a refresh actually reloading from the server as? normal what you know in other words what are we resuming from where we're keeping yeah, yeah. this resumability that's, that's a good question um so again go let's go back to your php example right like when you navigate to a particular url we would like to um show you html because that's the fastest way to get pixels on a screen for you is to just send you html right and so that html has to be created and so you it could either be created um dynamically as um, per request right as you navigate every time you do a navigation that it's created or you know it was done once and it's cached in a cdn or it was done as part of a uh, build process so if you have an ssg website but the point is somewhere along the line 
the application that you have written was executed to build the page, right? And so when we serialize the application into the HTML, so we can send it to the client or maybe store it in a cache or a CDN or something like that, when we do that, we essentially are pausing the application. And so when we get to the client, uh, on the client, we are resuming from wherever we paused it from, right? So you the, the you can also have a situation, like if you if you navigate to a page and the server renders the, pa the page and then you continue where you left off, that's one way to think about it. But you can also think about it like, oh, I navigated to a page and I actually server rendered it once, but it saved it in the CDN. And now, you know, the subsequent 10,000 navigations are all just getting the CDN. So you can essentially have easy free copies of it, right? So so it's not like a one-to-one -one that you have to have a server present. You can just resume out of a, a copy inside of a CDN as well. Okay, so I assume that somewhere in your quick code or your quick configuration, however it works, and I apologize because I haven't had a chance to play with quick yet. Um, I'm not very <clears throat> quick on the draw, shall we say. But... Um, Sorry, should have thrown a rim shot in there. Um, so you're telling it in your configuration, okay, I have a CDN somewhere that's, you know, the front end that's being cached from this. Uh, where, how is it that the app is knowing, okay, there's a CDN, so I'm just going to pull from that and that's been cached. Is Quick taking care of that or is that something you have to configure within your application? Um, so the CDN is not specifically something Quick cares about. It's just that the typically when we deploy our sites, right, we have CDN to return, uh, you know, you know, if you take your Next.js application and you pr you pre-render stuff or you like uh, render on the fly as needed, the CDN is oftentimes used in front so that every single request is not a separate request to the backend, right? That's a configuration thing that you would do for your application, and it has nothing really to do with uh, the framework itself. the The only thing the framework provides is this capability of, you know, it can run, and at any point you can say, "Hey, pause right here." In other words, serialize everything you have into the HTML in such a way that if I take this HTML and put it in a different browser, different tab, different you know, uh, virtual machine, so to speak, I can just continue exactly where I left off. I guess one of the things we should probably talk about is what kind of work that do, 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 do browsers have to do on hydration, right? Like, why do we have hydration? What exactly is happening over there? Well, yeah, along the questions, you talk about storing the serialized HTML, where are we storing it? Uh, are we talking like, you know, local storage? Are we talking it's all serialized and stored in data attributes and HTML elements? Is it some other storage? Where is all this stuff being stored to be able to pick it up? Yeah, so it's, um, it's a combination of attributes in HTML and a script tag that has a special tag on it, meaning don't execute it, right, uh, which contains a JSON uh, that contains basically the state of the system, right? So if you look at... Um, uh, maybe we can look at existing systems to kind of compare how how they work. So if you look at something like Next.js and React, right? The when you build when you navigate to a page, and let's say it's cached in a CDN, it comes to the browser. And so one of the things that you you have in there is that you have a script tag that's called underscore underscore next underscore data, I believe, and that contains the state of the application, so that the when the application continues on a client, it doesn't have to refetch all the data from the server. Right, that's a form of resumability. Okay. The problem with is that it's insufficient. Um, like, yes, you that data object prevents the client from having to go to the server to refetch all of the state of the application, so to speak. Right. 
but it doesn't help the framework because the framework also has a state of the state that it cares about. It, for example, cares about things like where are the component boundaries, where inside of the component are the listeners. Um, you know, what is the relationship between the data and the data bindings in the UI? In other words, if I mutate a particular data or state of the application, like what particular pieces do I have to re-render? That's, that's a state of the system as well that typically people don't think about, but it is part of um, what frameworks need. You know, usually we think of frameworks as a black box that like, okay, you know, frameworks does its magic. But like, if you think about it, the framework has to have this information somewhere. And so the... The problem we have is that current frameworks, they don't really know how to serialize themselves. It was not part of like the requirements when they were designed. And so they still need to have a way of like recovering this information, right? Like framework can't respond to a click event unless it knows that there is a click listener somewhere and it knows to attach a listener to the DOM. And unless that happens, like, you know, the page isn't really interactive. And so the question becomes like, well, how, how do the frameworks recover this information? And the answer is, well, they recover it by re-executing the application from kind of the root component. And therein lies the problem, right? The, the re-execution of the application from the root component is expensive. And so what reasonability uh, entails is a way for a framework to serialize all this stuff in the form of like additional attributes or additional something inside of the HTML so that when the framework wakes up, and says, ah, you clicked on this particular button, it can reason about like, so I have to update this component or something like that without having to execute any sort of, um, re-execute the application, right? Like you can just directly be like, oh, you clicked on this button, therefore I know I have to do this. Uh, but before you can even do that, like the framework has to know that there is a button to be clicked on, right? So all of this information basically has to be stored somehow inside of the HTML so that the framework can uh, do its job, right? Just like, and Next.js serializes the state of the application inside of the underscore underscore next underscore data uh, element inside of the HTML. The framework also needs to store its information so that it can just continue where it left off. So it can, you know, in the case of an application, what we're preventing is an is a additional fetch to fetch the data. In the case of a framework, what we're trying to prevent is the need to re-execute the application to figure out where the listeners are. Okay, so this brings up another classic web development question. And it said that, you know, you know the old adage that the two hardest things in computer science are naming things, cache invalidation, and off by one errors. Yes. So you have uh, all this data in your browser. How do you know or how is it determined when to go back and get more from the server if something was updated in your data or, or something or the other. Because it seems like, as I understand it, okay, you've rendered this page, you've serialized all this content, you have state, you have all this stuff serialized in the browser somewhere. So the next time it wakes up, they can just run all this code and, and do its thing. How is it known or determined or, they up, or is quick told, okay, we got to refresh this and get this from the server? So that, the answer to that is exactly the same way as you would do it in all the existing frameworks, right? For, so the way you use quick and the way you think about it and the way you uh, build applications is really very similar to just about any other framework that's currently out there, right? That's not the difference. The difference is what happens on, on kind of the wake up process. How does the system wake up to get it, get it going? Um, and so that's the unique part of reasonability. 
But the way you would do that is, you know, you'd have a button or something, right, that you would click on and then that you, that executes code that the developer wrote and that code says, oh yeah, I need you to go fetch this new data set and this data set has to be stored inside of this uh, reactive uh, data storage location. And then the framework's like, oh yeah, but this reactive data storage location is actually tied to these components and so now I have to re-render those components and so on. So that's that's pretty straightforward. Like from a developer's point of view, you really just write code the way you used to, you know, you you... You call the fetch to fetch data from the server at a convenient point of time. You uh, update the storage or the state of the system, and then you expect that the framework will just re-render the uh, appropriate parts. Okay, so another question running around the back of my mind here that I've been sitting on is uh, going back to the idea that you're providing everything that the page needs in order to be interactive most quickly. So with something like an Astro, something I'm familiar with just because I've been using mm -hmm. it myself, uh, and we've talked to Fred Schott here a time or two, uh, is, you know, Astro generates all your server-rendered HTML, and then if you want to plug in JavaScript, then the, you add that component into your page structure and it adds it as you need it. Now, in order for it... If I'm understanding you correctly, the idea is that you're sending everything possible from Quick. So is Quick sending serialized JavaScript from the front end as part of the initial page load and then somehow that's being converted? Or how is, at what point is the JavaScript interactive uh, you know, code enabled so that it can run after the page is, is you know, everything is loaded from the server side? Yeah, there's a lot of questions in there. Okay. Yes, um, many. <laughs> That way so, you can talk for a while. <laughs> so we already have a way of serializing JavaScript, right? It's just .js file. So that that in itself is pretty straightforward, and you know we don't have to have to do anything special. And you know, quick just loads JavaScript in the same exact way as everybody else does, right? There's a URL which ends in .js, and that's what browser loads, and kind of everything works. Um, the unique thing about it is that what what differentiates quick is that you have to solve a particular problem, and that is. The problem we're trying to solve is the framework wants to know where are all the listeners in the HTML. And it wants to know that without executing any sort of client code. Because executing, the, the, the problem with existing frameworks have is that they don't know where the listeners are. And so the way you find them is that you literally do an exhaustive search of visiting every single component to see like, do you have a listener? Do you have a listener? Right? And that, that takes time. And so what Quick needs to solve is this problem of like, okay, I have an HTML page. No JavaScript is executing just yet. Where are all the listeners? Like, I need to know where to attach the listeners. And the way Quick solves that is it says, well, I'm just going to set up a global listener on the root, and I would, I would rely on the fact that, you know, when you click on something, the, the bubbling of the events will eventually cross the root listener, and therefore that's how I know that you clicked on something. But now you have a set, next problem, which is like, great, so I can attach a listener you know, in the form of an HTML attribute saying like, there's a button and this button has a listener. Uh, but how do I know what code do I have to execute? And so the answer is like, well, that, you know, the attribute itself, you can just leave a URL to the code that needs to execute. So great, now you click on that. But now there is the next problem, which is, let's say you have a button that says, add to shopping cart. You click on the button and you know which code to execute. So you execute the add to shopping cart button, except that that code has what I would call amnesia in the sense is like, uh, right, but what item like do you want to add? Like, I have no idea. Like, I know how to add items to shopping cart, but like, you have to tell me like, where is the shopping cart? Like, what does the shopping cart already have? Um, 
you know, what item are you trying to add? What price of the item? You know, like there's data that is not inside of the JavaScript, right? That needs to be stored. And the way uh, existing frameworks kind of deal with this is that if you think about it, the, 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 the thing that you attach to the listener is a closure. And closure contains both the data as well as JavaScript, right? Now, JavaScript is easy to download. That's just the .js file. I just need to have a URL for it. That's easy. But the data is hard because it's not like you can take a closure and run json.stringify uh, on it. Like you can't just get the data out of a closure. Like it's like hidden. It's hard to get to. And so the 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 tricky, the cool, the amazing, I don't know what, what the adjective you want to use, or the unique part of Quick is that we figured out how to serialize the closure. And the reason why that is important is because once you, once you can serialize closure, what you can have is you can have a button that you click on, right? Saying like, add to the shopping cart. And that button can execute without uh, the existing, the rest of the application to execute. Because the, the button just says, well, I need to know what the shopping cart is and I need to know what item you want to add and I need to know the price and description and all these things, right? But because it's a closure and it already has serialized and captured that information, it can just continue on the client. So on a server, when the, when the initial thing got rendered into the HTML, the code executed that said like, oh, I am rendering a product A, which is like, you know, 995. And the current user has a shopping cart that already has three items in it. And so when it got to the point where the listener got attached to the HTML or to the DOM, it said, ah, okay, I see. Like, this is the code it has to execute. And, the, and I have to serialize the state of the system. The state of the system is like the, you know, the name of the product and the price of the product and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the shopping cart. And so it serializes all of that. And so when, it, when you actually click on a client, it doesn't have to rerun anything. It just says like, oh, there is this closure that contains the information about the shopping cart state as well as the, the product I want to add. And so you just have to execute that piece of code and nothing else. And this is where the savings comes from, right? Because you didn't have to rebuild closures. You, I mean, the code just said like, oh, I'm, I know what the closure is. I can just continue where it left off. It's kind of a hard thing to get your head around, right? Because we're used yes. to thinking about the problem in a particular way. And this is different. This is like very fundamentally different. Like the best way to kind of think about it is, is um, you know, that when you have a closure, right, which is both data and behavior, Quick knows how to serialize it in such a way that it basically separates it out, right? Data goes into the HTML and the, um, the code goes into the JS file. And um, it can just continue on the client. So like, for example, attaching a listener, like when most people talk about attaching a listener to a download, when you have a button and you want to attach a listener, right? Um, for most people, like the idea that you could attach a listener on a server is preposterous, right? Like, what do you mean attaching a listener on a server? That makes no sense. Like you can't attach a listener on a server, but that's literally the thing that's happening in Quick. In Quick, when the server is running, and it's pre-rendering your page, it comes across a button. And it's just like, oh, this button has a listener. Great. Uh, this button has a listener that goes and increments a count. The current value of the count is, let's say, three. So it serializes the three into it, and it serializes the information that like this closure is attached to this button. And so when you get to the client, the client can just doesn't have to do anything because it just waits for you to click the button. And the moment you click the button, the, the button, uh, you know, the event propagates up, the root listener captures the event and says, great, so what was the state of the system on a server 
when you when this button got registered, when you registered the listener? And the answer is, well, the count was three. And therefore, I, if I restore the, the function with the initial closure value of three, then the code can just execute, right? I didn't, you didn't have to pre-render anything else. You didn't have to re-execute anything else on the client. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, Check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then we'll just ro rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. and um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. So, I mean, this sounds like what we were trying to do back in the day with just jQuery and on-click handlers and the, uh, data attribute. I mean, that's, yes. that's the whole reason the data attribute was invented so that we could render truth that, you know, the, the buzzword, the buzzword was truth and dumb. Yes, uh, that's an excellent way of looking at it. And I would say that uh, Quick is basically the runtime performance or runtime characteristics of the jQuery and the data property, but developer experience of a modern framework. Right? So that's the that thing we're That bad, huh? Huh? I said that bad, huh? <laughs> well, the modern frameworks are pretty popular in terms of the developer experience. So like, you know, I like, guess... There's always rooms for improvement, but for the most part, uh, they have served us well, right? And, and so my point is like, yes, it's a developer experience of a modern framework that you're used to. So all the bells and whistles and enjoyment and the you know, mental model of building an app is there. But instead of having this uh, slow startup performance due to hydration, due to the fact that the framework has to recover all this information, we take the the good old jQuery, you know, put the state inside of data. I mean, it's more complicated than that and it's not actually in the data and, you know, more nuance in there, but that's a good good way of thinking about it. Okay, so I'm confused. So when I asked you earlier about the loading of the JavaScript, you said, okay, we're loading the JavaScript the same way every other framework does. But you say you're sending an event listener from the server side. So to me, that seems to he's be a little setting, bit of a contradiction. Am I missing something? the event listener. Okay. So he's, he's doing on-click. 
So there, there's on click equals mega gotcha. root function, and then mega root function has some some data is in the DOM itself, and then it sounds like it's also duplicated in basically a JSON that gets inserted into the script. So the script is being dynamically generated as well. Is that is that yes? The so the JSON has a state of the system. It's it's uh, similar to like next underscore data JSON, but it contains more information. Not just the state of the application. It also contains state of the framework as well. Um, but yeah, in that sense, it's the same. Now I did say that we load JavaScript in the same way as other frameworks. That's not hundred percent true. Uh, I mean, loading code is just you know URL and load code. But the thing that's unique with Quick is that um, Quick can is very good at breaking up your monolithic code base into lots and lots of small chunks. And the reason why that is important is because um, it's very easy to concatenate chunks together. To you know, if you if you decide that you have too many chunks, it's easy to you know build up a bigger chunks out of it. But the opposite isn't true. If you have one big monolithic chunk and you want to break it up into pieces, that is extremely difficult. And so one of the things that Quick does out of the box is that its goal is to create as many chunks as you can possibly imagine. Like the more chunks, the better. Because we can always concatenate them together into a single file if we want to, but the opposite isn't so, so easy. And the reason this matters is because uh, a lot of the, if you, if you think about it, a lot of the application that sends to the client is a duplicate of the HTML that's already in there, right? Well, many components on a page are components that execute exactly once. Their purpose is to set up kind of the layout or location of the menu or something like that, right? There's a huge amount of code in your, in your application that runs exactly once. And guess what? If you have a resumable framework, then that code still runs exactly once, but it runs exactly once on a server. And it doesn't have to run on the client. And if it doesn't have to run on the client, now we have a problem of like, well, why are we wasting time sending the JavaScript to something that will never execute on the client. And so this is where the fine-grained um, chunking comes in so that we can like break apart pieces that are unneeded and don't even bother shipping them to the client. To put it differently, you know, if you think about classical frameworks, they usually have some kind of a root component. And that root component is what's exported in your, in your bundle. And then that root component has references to the child components, which then references to more children, more children, and so on and so forth, right? So if you hold the root, you essentially are holding the whole, um, the whole tree. You know, there are tricks for lazy loading so that we, can, we don't have to load all the routes at the same time. But if you're holding a root, you're essentially holding all the components that are currently in the render tree. And that's unnecessary because we know that many of these components will never, ever re-render on the client ever again. Uh, if I remember correctly, you're doing this, like the key thing is that everything is asynchronousable, right? Yes. And that's that's why this is so great because you've got this event system that's got central routing, for lack of a better term, and then it's going to go and it's going to fetch the pieces that it needs and a lot of them are going to be in cache. Uh, so, you know, your first load performance is is better I guess it's as good as it can get in terms of time to interactive. The interactivity on each first click that's never, ever, ever been clicked before is going to have some sort of latency. It's not because uh, we have prefetching. Well, okay, but still, you know, 
I don't know how the average person uses the web. Maybe they do click on the page, go and get a coffee, come back, and then continue. But for me, as soon as I can click the button, I'm hammering it. And then if it breaks, yes. then I'll hit refresh, and then I'll wait for all the ads to load, and then I'll click the button. Um, well, the beauty of, of reasonable systems is that the moment you see the button, you can click on it. Now, yeah, I know that. I know that. Now, but uh, what what about... Do you do you have some mechanism that disables the button so I can't rage click it or that gives me feedback to let me know that the component that handles that click is loading? Is that part of the the initial root pack that's always downloaded? Um, we're thinking about it, about adding some kind of a CSS when this is happening so you could do something like that. But um, the idea is that when you navigate to a page, um, we know all possible your uh, all possible listeners that exist on a page, right? Because we, it was server-side rendered. And so the server, when it was serializing, is like, oh, I know you can click on this button and you can hover over this button and you can you know, scroll over here or whatever. So it knows all the possible things you can interact with the page. And so when it gets downloaded to the client, the first thing the client does is starts fetching the code associated with those uh, listeners. Uh, the advantage is that the, that that code is significantly smaller than the overall application, right? Huge swaths of code were kind of excluded from this because we know that we will not re-render these components and so on and so forth, right? And so as a result, um, the amount of JavaScript we have to download is, is a lot less. And, and we don't have to eagerly execute the JavaScript. So, uh, you know, you might end up with a situation where a resumable framework will have, you know, one-tenth of the JavaScript that it downloads on initial navigation. And then when you click it, you know maybe one tenth of that JavaScript even executes. So it's a it's a it's a huge difference in terms of the amount of JavaScript that has to run. But I want to make a point that at no point do you get in a situation where you click on something and you have to wait for JavaScript to load because um, all the possible interactions that you have are eagerly prefetched uh, as soon as you navigate, right? Or if you go to a tunnel or, or you know the standard. Uh, argument over here doesn't apply because we have this piece of code that does the prefetching. It doesn't execute it, but it does prefetch it. But prefetching takes time, right? So unless you're in an office building where you're connected to a nice juicy fiber connection, when you load a page, that page, every every request, it has DNS lookup time, and then it has the actual request round trip time. And in the ideal scenario, when you're sitting at a desk connected to fiber, you know, it's it's countable milliseconds to the point where literally you blink. That, that It takes about 300 milliseconds to complete a blink, right? Sure. And so literally within a blink, you've got the stuff. But when you're, you know, out at the store and you need to look up some information about a product or when you're... Uh, in the car and you need to, you know, get some information about where you're going or whatever, you know, in the real world scenario, that's not sitting at a desk connected to fiber or just you're on Wi-Fi and you're not in the room where the router is. You're, you mm -hmm. know, instead of being in the living room, you're in the bathroom, right? Okay. And all of these situations, that round trip time is significant. And so let's, 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 uh, let's kind of go through this and see how this would play out. Let's say we have an application that it, that has a one uh, megabyte worth of JavaScript. If you had Heaven a classical, what we're off to a bad start, <laughs> but it's kind of the app, most of the apps out there, right? 
So let's see if an oh, application... Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think that's part of the problem you're trying to solve, though, right? Is right. So let's go don't... through it. Let's go through it. Yeah. So let's say we, we start with one megabyte worth of JavaScript. Most frameworks that are out there um, need to do hydration, and therefore they will download one megabyte worth of JavaScript. And let's say one megabyte worth of JavaScript takes 10 seconds to download. We're super slow network, right? Let's just go with that thing. So we will pay uh, 10 seconds to download it. And then we have to pay, I don't know how many seconds to actually exit. It would be great if it only took 10 seconds. Right. So let's say it's a 10 seconds for download. And let's say it takes 10 seconds to execute that code, right? So a classical system, from the point you visit the page, the point you get the HTML, there's an additional 20 seconds you have to wait before you can interact with it. Right? So any click before then would be lost. Meaning if you click and it hasn't executed yet, that click just goes into ether. Like it's gone. Agreed. Okay. So now let's go and see what happens in the quick world. So first of all, we talked about this idea that Quick recognizes the fact that many of these components are not actually interactable for you, right? And so as a result, it never sends that uh, code down. And so what we see in the, in the wild is that it's easily 10% uh, of the original size. So instead of downloading a, a megabyte, Quick only has to download 100 kilobytes, right? And the, the other difference is, that um, it doesn't have to execute it eagerly. So you're not paying now this extra 10 seconds to, for execution. So literally the only thing you have to do is you have to uh, download uh, you know, one-tenth of the JavaScript. So if that, the other one was 10 seconds, now it takes an extra one second for us to download the JavaScript. Now, imagine you have an HTML that has a button. So you see the button. The moment you see the button, you click on that thing, right? Because we have a global That's how listener, I do it every time. In yeah, okay, you should, you should, you should. This is the goal we want, right? So you come and you click on it. So at this point, the event has been registered, which means the moment you saw the button, the button was interactable. Now, we haven't yet downloaded JavaScript, right? But whether you click on the button or not, the code eagerly starts to downloading that 100 kilobytes, right? And so let's say it takes one second. So after one second, you're... A click listener is now being processed. So there's two things going on that are different. First of all, at no and there's point about you... four or five clicks on that listener right now. Right, they're they're queued up in in sequence. I'm rage but the, clicking. Uh, but the point is, like, you cannot. Um, first of all, let's agree that it's already miles ahead of the other solution, right? Like the other solution was 20 oh, yeah, seconds sure. of like sure. misery. So we were way yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Of I'm not. I'm not debating that. I'm not okay. debating that. So now we have, well, we're down to 100 kilobytes, which is taking one second. And so you may see a, de uh, a delay for processing, but you're guaranteed when you click that it will be processed. Like the reason when you click 10 times is because is you're beautiful. not sure, right? If you were in the world where like, you know that you clicked already and you know that it's going to get processed, you are less likely to click on it multiple times. But let's just go this even further. And that is, uh, we have 100 kilobytes. The problem is we can't do anything until all the 100 kilobytes gets downloaded. One of the things that Quick can do is, is break the 100 kilobytes down even further to, let's say, a 10 kilobyte chunks, 10, 10 kilobyte chunks. And now we're down to 100 milliseconds. And now we're basically saying, oh, you know, we know from statistical past experience that you are likely to click on this particular button. And so we eagerly will prioritize. Where does, this, where does the statistics come from? From uh, existing a... users actually using the site. So as the existing but is users... That... Is that a module that's in Node, or is that um, something that's an Apache plugin? It's where, it's where uh, it's it's done all in the client. So every time the the quick uh, code and the JavaScript runs, it fires a event inside on a DOM, 
Uh, it's a custom event. And then you can listen to it. This is not something that's available out of the box, but it's relatively easy to do, is you can listen on these events. And based on that, you can build up a statistical model of like, what are the... But this statistical model mm -hmm. does not exist presently. I mean, th this tool doesn't exist presently. I can't just go include a script tag and then have it and, we, and require um, a module and have it work. It, it exists in the sense that uh, we have it working. It is. It doesn't exist in the sense that we haven't yet released it. So it is something that's coming and we already have it working. So the idea is going to be that um, it's just an event and we will provide you with a default service that will collect these events. But if you don't want to use our service, just use your own and like you don't have to use ours. Well, this was the promise of HTTP2, right? HTTP2 was supposed to allow the web server to do the analytics and then to be able to proactively push the yeah. smallest chunks of data that the client was going to need. And because it was such a good solution and it worked, would have worked so well and solved so many problems, it was completely ignored. I think it was implemented by one Tomcat module or something. Uh, the problem and, is and, that the server yeah. doesn't have the information. Like you cannot collect the statistical information on a server. You need to collect it on a, on a client. Because well, but you can collect it on the server it, because if you just break everything down in those 10 kilobyte chunks like you're talking about, you know, if everything is independent, uh, then the server would get on the first request ever, it would get 200 requests. But on the very next request, it would be able to push down a whole bunch of stuff. Well, yeah, but there's a lot more. There's a, there's a lot more to it than that, because. Uh, first of all, the server just sees requests. It doesn't know what you actually clicked on. So it cannot differentiate whether you clicked on a button or you just hover over it and the client is not proactively trying to fetch the data. Um, it also, server cannot really, I mean, it can sort of concatenate things together, but it can't do it as well as the framework. The, the, the problem here is that you need to have an end-to-end -end solution. You can't just say like, oh, I have a server that does this and therefore the problem is solved. It's like, no, no, no. Server has collect some data. The, the framework has to be know how to like generate the data. It has to know how to create the correct bundles. There are many things that have to align before the whole solution works. And I think the problem I, is that you can't just look at it as the one. events. Mm -hmm. I think if we took the events from Quick and fed them into Chat GPT, it could do a pretty good job of generating the bundles for us. So yes, that's exactly what we want to do, right? Is that we want to take this 100 kilobyte uh, bundle, right? And then break it up into pieces and then basically say like, look, there are certain pieces that are more likely to be needed than others. And then therefore we can prefetch them in that order. And what that means now is that we can, you know, instead of waiting the 100 kilobytes to download, we just have to wait for 10 kilobytes to download. And now we can process the particular event, right? And so notice how what we're doing here is that like, we are constantly pushing the the amount of JavaScript required for you to process it into a smaller and smaller piece until hopefully we've ended up with the absolute bare minimum that is necessary to process your request. And again, this JavaScript is eagerly downloaded. So like, yes, if you are, you know, immediately clicking the button, then the first time you, you might have a slight delay, which would always be, you know, way, way, way better than what you have in the current systems. But, you know, if, if you take any, you know, the, the code starts preloading immediately. So if you have any hesitation in clicking, by the time you click, the code is already downloaded and we're ready to go. And so this is what makes it uh, both um, all of one, meaning that like the, the startup performance is really constant for us. Like it doesn't matter how complicated your page becomes or et cetera. The amount of work we have to do is always the same, which is like, well, set up the global listener. Like it's always the same thing. Like we just have to set up a global listener. That's all we need to do, right? Everything else,
is, um, you know, just telling the browser, like, go prefetch all this JavaScript. You may or may not need it. I don't know. But we've already, like, subdivided into a chunks. And we already removed all the code that you know you're not going to need because it only runs exactly once on a server. Um, and so the amount of code is, is, is less. And we don't have to execute anything eagerly. It, all the code that executes, executes lazily as a reaction to user doing an action. Okay, so my head is spinning with all of the nitty-gritty details, although I admit I love getting into the details like this. But <clears throat> before we wrap up, because we're getting low on time here, uh, from a big picture, um, we talked about the server and the client. What are we writing in when we're creating a quick app? Are we writing server-side code in Node and front-end templates in, Re or I think it's JSX, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, how much code are we writing and is it all server, all client, both? How does that work? Uh, yeah, so you're writing JavaScript. You're writing JavaScript that looks very similar to other JSX network uh, frameworks. So JSX frameworks like React or SolidJS or you know anybody else who uses JSX is very, very similar. Uh, we have hooks like use methods, et cetera. Uh, the only kind of the big difference from React is uh, we the, the resumability requires true reactivity, fine-grained reactivity. Uh, so we have reactive primitives like um, signals uh, to kind of store your data. But other than that, it's very similar. And that's kind of the point is that you can take your existing knowledge of building framework, of building um, applications, and just transfer them over to Quick, and you'd be very familiar. You create components, the components have props, you use, use methods to create store, you use JSX to explain the thing, uh, you attach listeners to the JSX to have behavior. And so the, the way you would develop is, is very natural uh, for people, especially for people coming from React or SolidJS. They would just look at it and be like, yep, very familiar with this. Uh, the, the kind of the innovation is not in how you write. The innovation is what happens underneath. And what's happening underneath is basically a um, very clever way of breaking up your code into tiny pieces and then using statistical models to concatenate these pieces into the least amount of code necessary to get the application up and running uh, on the client. And then trying to delay running any sort of JavaScript on the client for as long as possible and not trying to delay it like in the sense of... Uh, of uh, Astro, which has islands, and the moment you want to interact with an island, you have to run hydration. Delay it in the sense of like we completely skip hydration. We just do reasonability, right? Like so, you the, what you're delaying is the effect of clicking the button. You're not delaying the the code necessary to set up the button. Okay, so but we're talking about the server. So what is the server? Is the server so oh. if you deploy, do you need to deploy yeah. somewhere that sits on a Node.js server? So the only requirement um, is is it has to be JavaScript, right? So any server running JavaScript. So that could be Node, that could be Dano, that could be uh, any of the edge functions. Um, so you have a large selection of things that you you can choose from. Uh, the key thing over there is that we are we're sticking to just the bare bones API like fetch. Uh, so that it can run inside of a service worker, right? So we don't have any API that is node specifics that we, would be tied to node only. Uh, we have what, the, what these things called adapters, um, and adapters kind of do the bridging. So we have an adapter for node, adapter for Dino, adapter for uh, Cloudflare, Netlify, and so on. Vercel is also on the list. Right, right. Uh, render, I think it was render, one of your options. I'm not sure it could be. The community is doing a very good job of adding more and more adapters as we speak. 
Right. So speaking of community, that's, you know, that's generally one of the um, things that can either help or hinder the adoption of a new framework, right, is how well does the community, uh, how fast does it grow and evolve and how how quickly is, no pun intended, is the community contributing things? Because obviously a core team can only do so much, yes. right? So yes. you're dependent upon the community for plugins and themes and whatever you want to call it. So what's your opinion on on the quick community? And I think the community has been on fire recently. Uh, like, for example, people come in and they brought in vanilla extract. They they added uh, adapters for Tailwind. Um, we're talking Ooh. about the community right now to designing uh, typed routes so that your URLs are typed with, with JavaScript as well. And so I think a lot of amazing work is happening with the community. I think, I think Quick has a very different mental model in terms of like the execution, not in terms of how you build an application, but in terms of how it executes. And I think once people understand it, they become uh, like very like, oh my gosh, this is so much better. Like, why haven't we done this uh, forever? And so they become a very um, excited community members. And I think we have a lot of those. Um, and so they're, they're uh, you know, paying back by um, adding lots of adapters, lots of features, et cetera. So I'm super excited about the community. It's actually growing really, really nicely. All righty. So if people want to learn more about Quick, uh, I believe the URL since Quick is part of Builders, quick.qwik, by the way, uh, sort of a new age spelling. Um, it's quick.builder.io. Is there any other uh, resource or place? No, that's the best place. From there, you can go check out uh, the GitHub URL, the, the Discord channel, uh, you know, showcase of apps, uh, presentations we've done. This is a good place to start. Excellent. All right. Well, DJ, do you have any questions before I wrap up? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I do. Sorry. What was I thinking? Yeah. What were you thinking? <laughs> so uh, this is, well, I want to get to this. I don't care if it takes us a little longer as long as we've got time uh, personally. Um, but it, it Quick is solving part of the problem that is, um, I, I think the most obvious, right? Like you should be able to await a component. This is something that should have been done back when React was created. The fact that React was created, and maybe it's because promises weren't standardized yet, I don't know. But the, the fact that React components are not asynchronous, it just is just mind blowing. Right. It's not just React, right? It's all of the frameworks. Don't yes, have yes, but it, it's it's mind blowing that where the key feature of JavaScript is asynchrony, that none of the major frameworks have ever done even a, a, a half job of of trying to manage that at all. So this Quick is kind of doing the most obvious thing that should have been fairly easy and simple other than the part about the whole statistical analysis bit i understand that that's you know but but there's the other part which is why do we have 1 megabytes of javascript in the first place right why why and, and it's not 1 megabyte it's 3 4 5 10 megabytes right that's that's the real situation 1 megabyte is is highly conservative we're talking about somebody has an input form to collect email addresses on a landing page. That's one megabyte of JavaScript. Somebody has an actual app that's starting at five and going to 30. 
Yep. Um, and so this is where I wanted to ask you about the the component dot kitchen, uh, the Elix component kitchen. I guess that's the right name for it, Elix component kitchen. So Elix is this project that I don't know if you clicked the link on it while I was put it in the chat, but it's this project that's entirely based on UX. There's no UI. It's it's uh, black and white wireframes, but the UX is engineered and nailed to perfection, such that all of the components work 100% of the time. And but the problem is again, you know, whenever whenever we solve a problem in this in this world of computers and programming. It's like we only attack one tiny piece of it and then we reinvent, reinvent all of the problems that we already knew existed for, for no reason, right? You know, Dino did this with his package manager. Elix did this by not being asynchronous. And so I'm wondering, wh- what about something like that? Not just, okay, let's make the load experience great, but let's actually provide, you know, for example, most people don't know that HTML has native combo boxes now and they work. Um, there are some things that Elix does that are a little bit more, and and we have native calendar widgets that work. Some people don't like using platform tools because they, you know, they would want to deploy an Android and an iPhone app that disobey both the Android and the iPhone user guidelines to provide their own custom experience. And they kind of, you know, do the same thing between the browsers where ignore the Chrome UI guidelines, ignore the Firefox UI guidelines, ignore the Safari UI guidelines, and just create something that violates them all equally. That's the calendar widget. End of rant there. Sorry, that was a, a tangent. But um, I hate the calendar widget story. Um, but there's there's a lot of things that Elix Component Kitchen gets where they've they've identified atomically every possible user interaction and experience that you're going to have in, in 99.9% of all your sites. Could Quick provide something like that so that we have good components that are built asynchronously and that work correctly uh, using the native the native platform where possible. It's a, it's a very uh, complicated long question. Um, I think our philosophy is that uh, we, you know, framework's job is to make it easy to build things, and so to easy to build things such as the Elix. Uh, Elix uh, component kitchen, right? So our job necessarily isn't to have a better comp- uh, component library. It is to provide it easy for, for somebody else to build something like component kitchen and make sure that it doesn't end up with one megabyte of download, right? I think that's... But, yeah. But it's still going to end up with one megabyte of download because someone... We don't, we don't need a hundred million implementations of these things. We need a few experts to build good implementations that work and that have, you know, you've got, you've got the history and the clout to back it up. You know, if right. you, if you push something, I mean, you don't have billions of dollars like Microsoft, but I'm confused. But you've well, got, how, um, I mean, the, the point of the framework is to make sure that it can break up your application to tiny little pieces that includes the component widgets. Right. So even if the component library you uh, in question is a megabyte by itself, Quick will make sure that only the absolute bare minimum of that code gets downloaded to the client as necessary, right? That's kind of the point and the promise of Quick. So, but but I could use a React component and Quick 
is going to figure out how to break it up. Well, no, even though I didn't, it has to be in quick, right? Um, well, that that's what I'm saying is you, if we have to go back to the drawing bar board on everything except for the one problem that's being solved, how much better off are we really? So then we should really look into tools such as mitosis, right? Which allows you to write something once and, and generate uh, the native code for all the different uh, platforms, right? So the idea with mitosis is that you can write uh, such a thing like component library. Wait, wait, wait. Nobody knows what mitosis is, especially not me. Mitosis.builder.io. And the idea is that you describe declaratively your component and it creates a uh, quick implementation, the React implementation, the Angular implementation, the Swell implementation, and so on and so forth. So that you get native components for all of these different platforms. I'm skeptical because look at Xamarin and the other attempts to do this, usually trying to do everything generically rather than doing one, th horizontally trying to do everything generically versus vertically trying to do one system perfectly. Vertical systems tend towards perfection. Horizontal systems tend towards, well, by definition, fragmentation. Are you describing like, you know, Apple is vertically integrated and so they own everything and as a result, they have really smooth UIs? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, if if you if you say, okay, well, we have mitosis, but it means a bunch of inexperienced people that don't know what they're doing can use a tool that generates kind of wonky uh, components for lots of different frameworks that don't take advantage of the specifics of the framework. I mean, maybe you do. Maybe for every single one of these frameworks, you've figured out every possible way to fine tune, you know, to translate. But so Xamarin, for those that don't know, was the iOS Android toolkit for in C Sharp. So you write C Sharp code, and it was going to build you your Windows phone. That was the idea behind it back when there was the Windows phone. Uh, it was to get people migrated over to C Sharp. So it was going to build your Windows phone, your Android phone, your iPhone. But the thing is, you, you whenever you have a system like this, and you see this with SDKs, right? You go on GitHub, and and you you want to get an SDK for Node for something. It turns out it was generated from an XML schema. You look at the code; it's all nonsense generated stuff. Mm -hmm. You don't get good quality, um, idiomatic code when you're using something that's generating horizontally. So, and, and this could be an exception to that. I just I haven't seen. Um, it. I, so I, I think uh, my point is that like the, the 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 component library is outside of the scope of the framework, right? So like frameworks need to provide the primitives and then you build other things on top of it. However, you're talking about this vertical integration and I actually um, want to make a point about that, which is that if you look at existing systems, like for example, React and Next.js, uh, React knows how to render the UI and Next.js knows how to do the meta frameworks and do server-side rendering. But there isn't a system that knows how to do the whole thing end-to-end, -end, right? So like React is... And look at the state of modern web development. Yes, and so... Try so, to load... Any web page other than Twitter. Twitter's the only web page that works these days. <laughs> uh, but the point is that, um, you know, React has no opinions about bundling. Neither does Next.js, right? And because of that, you can't take advantage of like, oh, clever ways of doing bundling. Whereas if you look at something like Quick, Quick doesn't just say like, oh, we only care about rendering. Quick is like, no, we care about rendering. We also care about server-side rendering. We also care about bundles and optimizing those bundles, and we also care about code splitting, and we also care about serializing and deserialization and reasonability. Like We basically, by owning the whole problem end-to-end, -end, you can get to much better solutions. So I think... Agreed. 
the um, the the trouble with the current ecosystems is that the existing frameworks, due to historical reasons, they basically said we only care about rendering, and not about bundling, and not about server-side rendering, and not about re, you know uh, restoring the state from the HTML or any of those things. And so, Quick is kind of unique in the sense that by caring about all these things, it can do things that other frameworks cannot achieve, because the bundler knows how the runtime works. And as a result, the bundler can do things that can't be done in other places because you know, certain assumptions can't be verified um, unless the, the runtime is in on it, so to speak, on, on being able to consume these bundles. So yeah, I, I I'm just mean, arguing I, I for vertical integration. I just think, I just, I just think take, it, take it the next step. I mean, take, take what Elix components did and then fix it so that that there it's asynchronous that it fits into the model, but but take that you know perfection, take that we don't need six hundred million inputs created out of divs. We need inputs first and foremost to be using inputs because that's how the browser works and that guarantees that it works as opposed to everything created out of divs and then your input doesn't work, right? If if you if you don't provide people with something, they're going to recreate the same problems. Now, granted, that one megabyte or five megabytes is going to be a lot more palatable, but you still have this problem of, okay, now the page loads, it still doesn't work. I One problem at a time, sir. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I want, what you're saying is exciting and i'm just i don't like react i hate react i think it's a terrible design pattern uh, i mean i think you maybe kind of get that coming from the angular world where you know the design think react pattern is, is has the lots of cool better. things going for it i, I actually am a, kind of a fan of react one thing that's got going for it is it's very simple like the mental model is extremely simple in react and that's a good thing uh, uh, is just uh, whatever okay okay uh, but now, 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 now I lost you. what my actual. <laughs> no, no, I derailed myself, but, but um, I I hate React, but I love the idea of Quick. I wish it was something more like Arrow or like Vue, but I love the idea of it. And the warts of React are maybe worth getting over for this benefit, except that one still has to go re-implement all of the components. So if I saw something that was you know, my my perfect, I think, would be something that looks a lot like Arrow, Elix, and Quick. It has the the build concerns and and uh, latency performance concerns of Quick. It has the UX that is guaranteed to work of Elix components, and has the super easy intuitive syntax of Arrow. And if you could, if you could mix those three things together, or view, um, if you could mix those three things together, that that would be perfect. But if I could only pick two, I want to pick perfection, right? So I want to have the loading be perfect, which is what Quick is trying to do and probably will do, especially with the statistical analysis. And I want the page to actually be guaranteed to work that when a user clicks something and the JavaScript is there, that it actually does the thing that it looks like it would do, and that the developer wanted it to do, which is what Elix components gets 
perfectly. You cannot use an, an Elix component and have a buck because every component is atomic unit tested and the components will work. So unless you style it, you know, when you layer the UI on top of it, if you style it terribly, you could probably get it so that things visually appear not where they are in such a way that you could cause a bug. But if you just put colors and shadows on it, you, you it, it will behave perfectly. And that perfection is what I want. I want guaranteed works every time in the face. I was going to mention that there is a project that kind of was trying to do this called papanasi.js.org. I pasted it in the chat for you. And um, the idea is that it's a widget library that uh, through mitosis basically generates for all of the uh, common frameworks out there. And so, um, you know, my hope is that we can... But does, do they work? I believe they work. Because yes. Elix components work. And that's that's what's exciting about it, is that they are, they're proven to work. But right. go on. No, I was just going to say that, like, I think this is the, the, the future, right? Where we are, uh, I think we're kind of stuck in terms of innovation because of all the existing ecosystems that are already out there, right? And one of the biggest ones is widget library. By the way, as a side note, Quick can use React widgets, but that's a separate uh, discussion. Uh, and so building our widgets in a way that is not dependent on a specific uh, framework, I think would really help with uh, you know being able to have a lot more innovation happening in our industry, because right now innovation is stifled by the fact that like right, but the thing that you have to undertake is not just the framework; you have to undertake many many other pieces as well. And so having projects such as Papanasi.js and and um, uh, Mitosis kind of help with that. Well, this is this is interesting. So I'm I'm going to take a look at this. And so, but how in the world are they making it so that it's both asynchronous for Quick, but synchronous for React? That's uh, details. Uh, I mean, uh, it's if you're asynchronous, um, if you write something synchronously, um, then uh, let me have to explain. It's it's uh, you don't have to like change your mental model when you develop um, uh, code in Quick, right? Quick just naturally inserts the asynchronicity into the system. And so, yes, you, you can have that. Sorry, I'm not really explaining it, but like, yes, it's possible. It, it, well, it but things have to be decoupled enough, right? Because if it's not decoupled, if you don't have good solid, you know, S, the, the, the solid principle design code, then you can't, you, Quick isn't going to be able to solidify non-solid code. It's not going to be able to de-spaghetti Spaghetti components. Yes, but but keep in mind that Quick controls the components, and so Quick can force a lot of asynchronicity through the components. It might not be able to despagetify the rest of the application, but it can certainly make sure that the components are lazy loaded, right? And so that alone significantly reduces the number of kind of monoliths you have in your system. And so yes, you can still do things to kind of mess things up, but like you're in a much better position or, uh, out of the box. Yeah, if you build with Quick, then you won't be able to create the kind of intradependencies that cause components to not be couplable because you're choosing Quick, so you're yes. choosing decouplability by default. I'm actually going to say it slightly differently, which is that if you choose existing frameworks, because they're synchronous, they tend to cause coupled code. Um, and so it's kind of the frameworks that that need to fix themselves first before... The, you, the developers can fix their, uh, their, their, their code. 
All right. So with that, we're going to wrap this up. I have a hard stop coming up here. And thank Mishko once again for coming to talk about Quick in incredible detail. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. So we'll move on to picks. Picks part of the show where we get to talk about things we like that may have absolutely nothing to do with tech or web development uh, or could have. We leave that up to the picker. So AJ, we'll start with you. Oh, I did not mention the Vernado heater. Uh last time but I, I i actually forgot to turn it on and it's getting a little bit chilly in here but i am in love with the vornado heater because it's really quiet so for example it's on right now it's heating up the room can you hear it no you can't if i put it on high i still don't think you'd be able to hear it through the microphone i can hear it as the ambient noise in the room on on low i can't hear it as the ambient noise in the room and it works great yeah it's five times more expensive than the cheapo, you know, Walmart heater. But the Walmart heater, whether it's on high or low, it's like, you know, you can't record a podcast with that on. But the Vornado space heater, I just, I'm just absolutely in love with it. I can't believe that it is so effective at heating up this space. It's a 10 by 18. And so it's at the limits of what it can heat up. And I do have a, an oil heater that I keep on low. But between, but but anyway, the Vornado just makes a huge difference. I'm super excited about Vornado. Um, I did get the one with the remote, but I got it open box, so I didn't pay the exorbitant price for it. Um, also, for for people who have office chairs, which is probably just about everybody that's listening to this podcast or that aspires to be someone who uses an office chair, which now now probably includes 
even more of everybody um, the, the, if the previous uh, didn't. There is this place called OfficeReplacementParts.com, and they can give you a cylinder for a chair that actually has a warranty. So unlike Amazon, where all of the sellers pop up, are there for three weeks, claim a lifetime warranty, and then aren't there in six months when you're like, hey, this thing doesn't work anymore. So the actual website for OfficeReplacementParts.com is horrendous. It is so terrible. You would never use it. Um, if you didn't have to, but if you call their phone number, it doesn't even have the right information on the website, but if you call their phone number, you can talk to a real human and the real human has the catalog with all of the actual information that's important for someone who's tall or fat or tall and fat. Um, like how many pounds is the cylinder rated for? How tall is it? What's its offset? Which if you want to be able to sit comfortably and you're tall or fat or tall and fat, you need to know these things. And so the the Amazon cylinders suck because, as you know, after six months, maybe a year if you're lucky, they start, you know, decompressing and they don't work anymore. And then you got to replace them again. And so I'm just I'm super stoked about the um, the stuff that I've been able to get the, the 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 replacement I was able to get from this place because maybe it won't last more than six months, but it has a warranty and a person I can call. And that I've actually had an email with to confirm that this is the right cylinder for this chair for my weight and height. And so, you know, even if it does break, I get one for free next time. So I'm stoked about that. Oh, I so need to call this place. I need a cylinder in a bad way for my chair. It's about 12 years old. So yeah, I definitely need one. Half the time I'm, I'm, uh, picking myself up again because it keeps dropping. (laughs) Well, the other thing that you need to know about is the, I don't know what they call it. It's like cylinder separator or something. Um, the one I got was the office owl cylinder removal tool. You, it's, it's 14 bucks and it includes a crappy cylinder that you probably don't want to use, but it makes it so you don't have to use the pipe wrench. And if you don't have to use the pipe wrench, then you don't have to damage the cylinder that you're taking out further, just in case you do have to put it back in. Cause once you use the pipe wrench on your chair cylinder, it you can't use it anymore because because it creates marks in the metal that then it won't attach to the chair properly and won't decompress properly down into the base. So this little kit is pretty easy and simple to use. You just put the top one on all the way at the top and keep it loose, twist it so the screws don't align, and then put the bottom one on tight, and then you put screws through it, and the tight one will push the top one that's looser. If you see it, you'll understand. And then the chair pops off. So you're just creating pressure by, you know, using the hex tool to screw a screw on either side until the chair pops off. Makes it really easy, doesn't damage it. And then if your replacement cylinder has a nub that's a different size where it's either too short or too tall so that it's either hitting the nub and then causing the chair to go down or it doesn't hit the nub. And when you hit the release, then nothing happens. You have to take the new cylinder off and there's an adjustment screw in the chair. Anyway. I become an expert on office cylinders in the, in the last, well, on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> so if you need any help, just, you know, give me a call. But um, yeah, super stoked about that stuff. And then as per usual, um, if you want to uh, follow my no-nonsense, um, uh, uh, hopefully good software engineering, well, I, I know it's good software engineering advice, but hopefully you'll like it. Um, underscore, Beyond Code on Twitter, 
Uh, if you want to follow the rants and whatnot, live streams or Kool Age 86 on YouTube and Twitch. So Kool Age 86 is where they can contact you for help with chair cylinders too, right? Um, it, you know, it doesn't matter how how they contact me for help with chair cylinders. I, I think I'm I think I'm going to take. I made a little video when I did it. It's about five minutes long. I think I'm going to upload it on YouTube after some light jump cut editing. But um, yeah, and you can follow if you want the hot takes. You can follow me on Twitter, but I don't recommend you do that because you'll probably be offended and just unfollow me anyway. <laughs> All right, so my turn next. I will go with the dad jokes of the week, which are, as I always like to think of, the high point of any podcast episode I'm on. Uh, so when I was uh, 16, I got one of my first jobs, and he was telling me about one of his first jobs. And he said, when I was your age, my first job, I worked at, had, I had over 500 people under me. And I said, wow, did you work in a big corporation? He said, no, I mowed the lawn in a cemetery. Very nice. That's I'm going to add that to my list. I got a, a dad <laughs> riddle for you. Yes, yes, please. It has wheels and flies. What is it? A flying saucer. A garbage truck. Very good. Very good. I have heard that before, but I could not recall that. <laughs> Thank you. I always love it when people bring the dad jokes. Um, and then yesterday, I gorged on 14 cans of alphabet soup. Don't ask me why. I ended up having a crippling bowel movement. Vowel movement? Is that yes. vowel? Yes, vowel. <laughs> yes, rhymes with bowel. And then finally, uh, you know, we always talk about having side hustles. And so I recently opened a school to teach people the art of clairvoyance. But it was shut down due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's like the one where uh, I went to see a, um, a clairvoyant. Well, there's another term I'm thinking of, uh, a mind reader. Or somebody who can see the future. What's the term? Anyway, I knocked on the door and she said, who is it? So I left. A medium. Right. Because she didn't know. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. All right. So moving on. Mishko, do you have any picks for us? I do. Uh, believe it or not, I'm actually originally a hardware engineer by trade. I studied computer engineering. And so every once in a while, I like to tinker with hardware. And I discovered this cool website called Flux.ai, which kind of is like the Google Docs of hardware design, where you get to like put your chips on, you design a PCB, lay out the, 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 the parts, you can emulate everything. So it's a pretty cool way of like designing your, you know, simple uh, hardware pieces, which I think is fun. Cool. Yeah, that's a pretty, uh, pretty neat looking site. Uh, oh, yeah, that would be fun. I am, I am completely ignorant when it comes to hardware stuff like that. I think a Raspberry Pi scares me, although I haven't tried to mess with one, so. Yeah, that looks like fun. It looks like a nice little drag and drop UI that you can do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, check it out. All right. Alrighty. So with that, we will wrap this episode up. Another long one, but tons of great nitty gritty info. Uh, before we go, Mishko, if people want to contact you and yell at you or give you money or ask you questions, where's the best place to do that? I think Twitter at, uh, at, at uh, mhevery, M-H-E-V-E-R-Y. Alrighty, we will put that in the show notes for your viewing and clicking pleasure. 
With that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you once again for coming, Mishko. It's been a pleasure talking to you and learning all about Quick. Um, and we, as we mentioned, we'll put in the show notes all the places to learn about Quick. And with that, we will wrap it up. Uh, and we'll talk at you next time on JavaScript Jabber. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.